Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Today we'll be discussing the article titled The Execution of Movement, A Spinal Affair. This article was published December 9, 2020. Joining me today are Editor-in-Chief Nino Ramirez and Professor Sten Grillner. So let's get started. Thank you very much and uh, welcome uh, Stan. And it's an incredible honor for me, of course, to talk to you today. You've shaped my career like nobody else. And I, I have to admit that actually as an undergraduate, uh, reading your papers was one reason I became a CPG fan for life. And uh, I still remember when we discussed, you know, your spinal cats and coming from Germany, I was like in Germany, um, you know, everything was about reflexes and the idea of CPGs that continue after you cut the afferences uh, was very, very insightful for me. So, so when I read this, paper that this review about the spinal cord and and the affair of the spinal cord i thought it's time to to have an interview about it uh, <laughs> because it really leads to the the broader discussion of cpgs in rhythmogenesis and uh, and also important clinical implication for spinal cord injury but uh, before we go into this broader discussion stan would you mind to describe the basic walking motor pattern that locomotion is driven by, and then also, in particular, the temporal sequences that characterize the stepping cycles in these four distinct phases. Thanks so much, Stan. Thank you for your very kind words, first. And um, so I would start then with the uh, step cycle. Essentially, if you go from the, uh, the point where the foot touches ground, then we have the support phase that carries the, the load of the body on, on the limb. And that progresses throughout the phase until uh, you get to the end when, uh, when there's less load on the limb. And then the limb is withdrawn. That's a lift off phase. So you lift up the limb and the other limbs will take, take the load of the body, of course. And then follows the flexion phase when the limb is brought forward. And then finally, and the most difficult phase is a touchdown when the limb extends again, and it must touch ground and move the limb backwards exactly at the speed that, that the animal moves forward. Otherwise it will break or, or it will be damaged. So that's, and all these phases are subject to control. Fascinating. Stan, and I find it very fascinating because uh, someone like me who works on the neural control of breathing, you know, we're also familiar with the concept that it's not just inhalation, exhalation, but it's broken down in, in different phases, say three phases, but, you know, some people actually speculate it might be false phases. But uh, one interesting aspect, and you mentioned this in your review, is that in neonates, there are only two phases. And, and maybe could you talk about the, the developmental maturation implications yeah. in this context? No, both in, in, in rodents and uh, other mammals and, and the human neonate, when they start walking with what you call spinal stepping, so that simple flexion extension movements of the limb, then, then you have essentially <clears throat> just flexion and extension of, of the limb. So let me start from the beginning and say that, that both, 
both in, in, in rodents and newborn humans, when you have the uh, spinal stepping movements, then you have just flexion and extension. It's, it's a sort of a simplified pattern that maybe reflects coordination that, uh, that would, would be in, in simpler animals. When, when you take a newborn baby or you take uh, a neonate rodent, and look on the flexion, the, the walking movements that they perform. It's very simplified movements with just flexion and extension of the limbs. And it's just two phases. And for humans, the, the pattern of locomotion develops gradually. And after about a year or so, we have the four phases and you have the, the permanent locomotion. For, uh, uh, for rodents, it's a matter of several weeks. And essentially, when, when they start to support the body, then, then you have the four phases. And it's logical, of course. Fascinating. Yeah, very, very interesting. Because I think in, in case of respiration, we have similar situation that, you know, some people say that the neonate has only inspiration, in fact, and uh, mm -hmm. expiration is passive. And, uh, and then also when, what we notice is that even later on, some phases can fall out, you know, they can be omitted and then they go back to, to a two phase, then go to three phase. So I think it's, it's like modules, which I think uh, leads us later on to the discussion, how, how these patterns are composed and, and like Lego pieces together, mm -hmm. these different faces exactly. and sequences. And, and in fact, I have uh, the suspicion that some of the problems that people have when they're newborn as babies is they don't put these modules together in the right temporal sequences. So, so who, who knows? I think it's a very important observation and, and may have general implication. So mm -hmm. another very important general implication that you had in your paper was that this four distinct phases persist even if you take away uh, sensory feedback and suggesting that this pattern is established by the CPG, by the central pattern generator. So could you tell the listener how these central pattern generators generate the four phases and, and what you know about it? I mean, first one should say that the detailed knowledge on, uh, on which interneurons take part and how they interact precisely is still not quite now, but the and but my interpretation of this, based on the data we have, is that for each group of synergists, like the hip extensors or the hip flexors or the knee flexors, etc., et each of these small units form a kernel, so that they can generate rhythmic activity all by themselves. And of course, if you have a flexor and extensor kernel and they are connected with a reciprocal inhibition, you will have alternation. If you, however, have a situation where you have inhibition between uh, different circuits, then you can get <coughs> a pattern when you have bursts which fall in between the flexor and extensor pattern. And I mean, that's what you have for, for knee muscles and foot muscles, uh, so that you get essentially four different phases of the movement. That's what, uh, how we interpret it, because one must also realize that the limb, 
doesn't only perform real locomotor movements, but you can walk on your knees, you can walk tiptoeing as you walk, you can walk backwards, and of course you need to recombine these parts in order to have a meaningful locomotor apparatus. Stan, wonderful. Thank you so much. And, you know, I want to go into this a little deeper because many people that just listen to this, how you tell them, don't know that there's a big, big story behind it and a lot of controversy because in a way, I mean, Graham Brown proposed this half-center model where you have the mm -hmm. reciprocal inhibition between the centers. And and there was, I know at least for breathing, the neural control of breathing for many decades, centuries almost, uh, the question, you know, what happens if you take away the inhibition? Does these networks fall apart? Because they, the rhythm is generated by the reciprocal inhibition. But I think what, what you're saying is, is that the rhythm is generated within these modules and the yeah. reciprocal yeah. inhibition establishes the, the timing. Yeah. Is that I mean, kind of... That's, that's, that's exactly that. And that's why, I mean, when I started in quite a few years ago, um, the reason why I shifted from, uh, from the cat to the lamprey was exactly to try to understand how the CPD operates. Because you had the gray and brown, and one had the diffuse expression that you had rhythmic activity and you had reciprocal inhibition, you had fatigue or you had something else. And on the other hand, I realized that with the techniques available at the time, and actually still, it has been very difficult to pinpoint which are the interneurons, etc. And by by moving to the lamprey, we actually were able to understand how the CPG operates. It's exactly that point. Yeah, I think that was an, a genius move to go to the lamprey. And, and, and I think we'll, we'll come back to this lamprey model mm -hmm. when it comes to the evolution of, of the supraspinal, supraspinal control. But I was very fascinated because, you know, in, in the neural control of breathing, we had this huge discussion or shock when when you block synaptic inhibition and rhythmicity persisted and uh, mm -hmm. which was kind of not what you expect if if the rhythm depends on inhibition mm -hmm. but the idea that you have these modules explains this and um, exactly. and i think in the in in respiration we we now also know that the different phases are generated by different kind of excitatory modules or centers or kernels, as you mentioned, mm. that depend on excitatory transmission. And I think you know also more actually how this intersegmental control and intrasegmental control is happening. And uh, maybe you want to elaborate a little bit on this. Uh, I think, for example, Ole Keen did beautiful work on that. And so maybe yeah, for the I, listener, it would be good to explain it. Over the the last decade and a half with the de development of, of genetic uh, techniques and also the subdivision of interneurons in the spinal cord, the V0, V1, V2, V3, etc. Et one has defined <coughs> subtypes of, of interneurons and that in turn has allowed the manipulation, inactivation or activation of different subgroups of interneurons, excitatory and, and inhibitory. And uh, that has, with regard to the ipsilateral burst generation, it's still a little bit un, unclear how that happens. 
but with regard to coordination between left and right, essentially a vertebrate will have, and most vertebrates will have walking, trot and gallop. And gallop is of course all the most simultaneous movements of the limbs. And if you remove one type of interneuron called the V0 interneurons altogether, then you have just a gallop mode, a simultaneous move. But then it turned out, uh, which, which was very elegant, that if you, uh, the V0 interneurons can be subdivided in two types, the V0D and V0V. And if you remove one of them, the animal will not trot, it will, it will walk and gallop. And if you remove the other ones, it, it will instead trot, but not to walk, but also gallop. So, so that's a very elegant demonstration that subtypes of interneurons are specified for different functions. So cool. And, and again, I, I seem like a broken record, but I mean, uh, we think in a very similar way in, in your control of breathing. And what we find is that the, the coordination between the different phases seems to be established by GABAergic interneurons. Mm -hmm. and, but we don't understand exactly, is it that V0, V1, etc. So definitely the, there's a lack in our understanding compared to locomotion. But what but we found we also is that within that, go ahead. No, what I said, with the prebutzian complex, it seems that you have at least two types of interneurons that interact, and then you have the other exactly, units. exactly, <laughs> and absolutely. And then within that prebutzian complex, we have these uh, inhibitory neurons. Actually, almost forty percent of these interneurons mm -hmm. are inhibitory, and we were always puzzled. You know, why why do we have so much inhibition within that excitatory kernel? And because if you do a computational model and you have too many inhibition, the network falls apart and, mm -hmm. and, and the rhythm falls apart. And it turns out that this inhibitory control regulates the excitability of the, the excitatory circuit. Mm -hmm. And by regulating excitability, it regulates the frequency because you have a refractory period. So if there's too mm -hmm. much excitation, the cycle becomes very, very long. So these inhibitory neurons seem to control the speed the mm -hmm. question now is, of course, whether we have actually something like gates also in, in breathing, where you can switch from one state of breathing to a faster state of breathing. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's a crazy idea, but I think there's no evidence for that. But right. it's good that, that basically in, in locomotion, you know that actually these gates can be controlled even within the spinal cord. Mm -hmm. So that leads to the question, you know, how are these controls, these gates controlled by supraspinal control? You know, like how, how does the, the brain kind of regulates what gates you have, et cetera, and, and how does it interfere? I mean, essentially, I mean, you have these locomotor command regions that can be activated and they, in mesencephalon and diencephalon, and they target a lateral, a nucleus in the lateral gigantocellular that, uh, that provides excitation to the entire CPG. So that is driving locomotion. But then in addition, you have at these two modulatory systems that, that the 5-HT system that adds excitation, it's not the driver, but, uh, but it's a modifier. And the same with the from locus ceruleus, the ceruleus spinal noradrenergic pathway. 
but their role in my mind is that they fine tune the circuitry at the spinal level rather than to drive the locomotion. So, I mean, that's, that's for driving the CPG. Then, of course, we know that as you walk around, one step is not identical to the next. You, you avoid, you position your foot in different places. And then you have yet another system that comes in, and that is the, the corticospinal, and that it helps to, for precision walking. So you can superimpose on the CPG, you then have signals to uh, turn the position of the foot to, uh, so that you don't stumble or you put, put your, your feet in, in, in a different place. That's uh, the pre precision walking. That's something that is added. And then, then you also have for the long-term adaptation, you have the spinocerebellar circuits that are also coming into operation. So you have the CPG as a kernel and it's embedded in, in the sensory and it's embedded in, in the variety of supraspinal mechanisms. Wow. And, and Stan, you know, you wrote one paper that totally fascinated me was, I think it was like 50 million years of, of supraspinal control or, or something like this was the title. And I think it was based on, on your evolutionary comparison between lamprey and and, no, I mean, and the, I, I the mean, mammals could. Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit more dra dramatic than that. It was 500 million years with the base of ganglia. <laughs> Sorry, even more. Okay. Would, would, and, and I mean, okay, so look, 50 what, was already what, big for me. So, so what that shows that the, the detailed circuitry actually of the base of ganglia, the habenula, with the different types of neurons, transmitters, copeptides, connectivity. It's also there in the lamp. Of course, much fewer neurons of each type, but the basic plan, the basic design of the basic ganglia was actually there very early in vertebrate evolution when the lamp diverged from the main vertebrate line. And actually what corresponds to cortex, a tiny, tiny little bit, that was supposed to be just olfactory, but we just this year showed, or last year showed that, that it actually have a motor cortex. It does have a somatosensory part and it does have a visceral part. And until a few years ago then, it was assumed that it was all, all olfactory with no processing. So one has a lot of assumptions in the literature. <laughs> that's wow, and it's always more fascinating, the truth. <laughs> the truth is always more yeah. fascinating than, than the original yes. assumptions. It, yeah. It's really very, very fascinating. And, um, and also it explains, you know, why, why when you go, for example, we had a lot of podcasts on songbird system where okay. you know, the control of ro vocalization and is, is very similar, you know, where you have the, the role of the basal ganglia, you distribute the motor control in, in, mm -hmm. in, in similar way, like in, in a mammal and, mm -hmm. uh, and I think this, this is really fascinating how, how it was there early on. You know, that the evolutionary aspect is, is so important. And, uh, and also it's fascinating that, that you had already this kind of dichotomy of, on one hand, neuromodulation, mm -hmm. which as you said, sets the state of these circuitries mm -hmm. and then the fine temporal control where you know, the, the timing is actually affected by neural signals coming down from the different areas. And, uh, and the, 
the role of uh, modal learning, was that also established early on or did it, is it an, a later invention? I'm pretty sure that we have motor learning, but we have not studied that. But what, what, what one can, why one can infer that is that as dimensions of the body changes from the tiny little larvae to the rather large, I mean, the frequency of locomotion, everything changes. And that must be an adaptation and that is learning. And I would also think that, that they actually learn navigation and so forth. They learn to remember. But, uh, mm -hmm. but this is very early in vertebrate evolution, as early as you can get now. And it's, it's a riddle what was before. Yes, absolutely. It's fascinating. You know, the problem in humans is that we become so much dependent on the supraspinal control that we have these severe consequences after spinal cord injury. Now, what has changed in the human, you think, compared to, let's say, the cat or, or animals that can recover quite amazingly after supraspinal control uh, injury? I mean, what one can say is, is that if you take a variety of, of, of mammals after a spinal transection, they can generate the coordination underlying locomotion. But of course, they cannot control that part. It is, I mean, yes, you have some, yes. of course, where you have regeneration and so forth, and most you don't have that. But after a transaction, right away, you can activate pharmacologically and a little bit later on in the chronic spinal state, they can generate all aspects of the motor pattern generation. And what has happened in humans, it's, I think you have, more of a parcellation of the different joints so that they are independent, more and more independent. But I mean, actually you can, I mean, if we take spinal cord injury, most spinal cord injuries are not complete. They call them that it's a complete spinal cord lesion, but, but you can then show that there is some remaining. And, and if you train people that have been in a wheelchair for, for years, some of them can be made to walk again. If you, if, if you put them on a treadmill, you activate the limbs in the appropriate way, first passively, then actively, they can learn to, to utilize the limbs. Not perfectly, but they can walk with a walker or a, or a cane or something like that not long distances, but maybe to the elevator and so forth. So they, they need not use a wheelchair. So, I mean, and that is reutilizing in a smart way the machinery that is there on the spinal level. So you can train the spinal mechanism and you use a tiny little bit remaining of supraspinal control. But you also have spinal cord injury with a complete lesion like a stab, a knife, cut by a knife, etc. And there you can still have them on the treadmill. You can induce, but, but you, I don't, I think it's correct to say that you have never got full-blown locomotive movements, but you get aspects of the locomotive movements. So it's, uh, but I mean, it has show, been shown, of course, in many instances, 
that you have rhythmic activity in, in muscles around the joint, etc. So, so you have the capability to generate rhythmic activity. And we are, of course, adapted to walk on two limbs and not four limbs. Yeah, yeah. Maybe also a reason why it's, it is, the machinery is slightly different, but I, I don't think it's a major difference. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, that's, this gives us also hope. I mean, you're right, because we are two, two feet people that, that we needed much more complex postural control. And, and then also we separated the, the digits, the, the hand movement. You can play piano, violin, mm -hmm. which, of course, requires a lot of complexity here. Do you think that the, the improvement in, in these brain-computer interfaces might eventually replicate some of this supraspinal neural signal control? Or is this... No, I mean... I mean, essentially, um, you have uh, these impressive uh, ways of Anders Schwartz, for instance, etc., et showing that the patient can actually grasp a chocolate bar and move it to, to, to their lips and eat, which is yeah. really requires quite a lot. And I mean, it seems to be done with a training of, of just a few hundred neurons. And of course, it is a very clever interface <laughs> that interprets these neurons but uh, but i mean it's uh, uh, I, th i think there is some 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 hope hope for that i mean patients with a high spinal lesion that essentially cannot do anything by themselves i mean it's it's um, how far one will get i, I don't know but, but mm. and i mean it's uh, It's amazing that with rather randomly chosen neurons in the right general area <laughs> that yeah. you can, can actually program. Yeah, I, you know, I'm at University of Washington and, and I talk a lot to EPFETs and it's incredible how, how they use this learning capability of single neurons to drive these BCIs and, and go on. You know, but, but you know, we haven't. We, we haven't talked about one important aspect here that, that is totally pertaining to this discussion, and that's sensory input. And you go in, in great detail also about the role of, of reflexes and kind of the role of the CPG as a master controller of, of where, where they use these different sensory afferences. And one of the big concepts here is this fundamental property of CPGs in reflex reversal. So... Maybe if you can talk a little bit about reverse, uh, reflex reversal with respect to, for example, Golgi tendons. Yes, I could do. But let me first take, take the cutaneous reflexes because those are those that are, are most simple to understand. So, so if you touch the skin on the dorsum part of the paw of a cat or, or, or a rodent, if you do that, during the flexion phase, you will have an enhanced flexion, like you have a twig and you like to overcome that, the stumbling response. But if, if you would have the same response in the middle of the support phase, it would be very difficult. I mean, you would just tumble over. And that reflex is actually totally suppressed, and it's suppressed by the central pattern generator. But not only that, it actually also activates a reflex to the extensors. So if you have an activation of the skin as you, in the middle of the support phase, 
you will have additional extensor power. So it's really switching as, as you, for each step as you go, it's switching back and forth, back and forth. So, so that's, that was, it's, it's, it's rather neat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's designed by evolution. I would say. Yeah, and also it it speaks to to the complexity of reflexes that they're not just like yeah. like sometimes uh, implied, like machine, you know, where it's triggering something. So I mean, yeah, have, and then the Golgi tendons, Golgi tendon organ, and yeah. that's a different matter. Golgi tendon organs were studied for for decades in the resting animal. And, uh, and it was known as a clasp knife reaction from Sherrington and onwards. And, uh, it, and it was thought that you essentially produced inhibition on the extensors. Now, if you test that during locomotion, the CPD again, organs <laughs> modifies the, the situation so that that the Golgi tendon organs that react on the force of the extensor mask muscles that support them and send the signal to the spinal cord that is related to the load on the limb. And the effect is that it facilitates extensor. So it's sort of positive feedback lasting for, 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 for part of the step cycle. So that emphasizes that it's very difficult to make predictions from an inactive sleeping animal to an active animal. And when you have an active behavior, then things that doesn't make sense before may start to make sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why, why you need to have these running cats or running mice to, to really understand this. And now, of course, if we have to mention the other big player, which is the spindle afferences, And I think maybe also the fusimotor control, the gamma afferences, how they regulate the step cycle. And would you mind to talk about this also? Yes. And the, the inputs from different muscle spindles in the different uh, muscles of the limb provide monosynaptic excitation to, their to, to the muscles in which they are located. And they often also give reciprocal inhibition to the, in the antagonists. And this connectivity is actually integrated into the normal locomotor pattern. So it, it emphasizes that, that if you inactivate the spindles as Dugot Akai has done, for instance, together with Jesson, uh, you see rather little differences. And I mean, it's essentially the, they are, the pattern is integrated in, into that. So if, if you don't make any radical tests, if you just look on locomotion, on the treadmill, etc., you see rather little differences. Now, if you inactivate them and you test rodents, swimming rodents or swimming mice, you see suddenly there, there is a marked difference. And why is that? Well, if you think about it, when the, the mouse is swimming, it needs to bring forward the flexion phase against the water viscosity. And that resistance is very much more than the resistance that you will have when you move in the air. So there's an increased resistance and then the muscle spindles come into play. 
so that, that makes perfect sense. But that shows that they are operating, but they are normally so well adapted to the patterns. So you don't see a difference if you don't challenge the system. And yeah, that's fascinating. And you know what? That brings me back to, to work that I did with Keir, Keir Pearson, where we actually did vibration and to activate them spindle and we couldn't reset the rhythm whereas the tendon organs beautifully, you know, did this. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a big puzzle and we had no clue how to interpret this. And, and our big friend, you know, Arthur Prochaska, who spent his lifetime working on spindles, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, was of Afferent, course very skeptical. Efferent spindles, yes. I mean, he, he, I think he did very interesting work on the spindles because he tested the spindles, uh, the, the spindle afferents, I think mostly, uh, during uh, during walking, but it challenged. So you had precision walking and very demanding walking, and you had standard walking, etc. Et and as it's well known, it was actually my thesis many years ago. <laughs> the the control of dynamic and static gamma motor neurons, that is, the the special motor neurons that control the dynamic sensitivity and the static sensitivity of the spindles. And what uh, Arthur Prohaska showed was that if you have standard movements, then you have the static predictable movements, etc. That, that, that controls that. But if you have a situation where you challenge tight walk roping, <laughs> tight rope walking, <laughs> Or, or, or something like that, when, you, when it's completely unpredictable, then you get the dynamic gamma motor neurons activated and the dynamic sensitivity of the spindles upgraded. So you, you can respond, re respond with very, very little delay. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, I, I talked a lot with Arthur about the Fujimoto set and, and that's exactly what, what I think came out of it. And, mm -hmm. and he always told me like, look at a cat, how smooth they walk and how, mm -hmm. you know, amazing. And, or if you see a mouse in the wild, you know, they can climb up, you know, a tightrope is no problem for them. You know, I, so. I, mean, I mean, they can climb up the book, <laughs> the wall of, of a building. Yeah. It's, it's just fascinating. <laughs> and so, so I think in evolutionary terms, when, when did this develop, you think? Is there any knowledge about it? I'm, I mean, you have already in the lamprey, you have stretch receptors that are integrated to sense the movements, but they are not muscle spindles. It's debatable if you have muscle spindles in fish. I think there has been some report of that, but I, I think it's debatable. But you have muscle spindles in, in, in frogs, and they have been studied well. But in frogs, the muscle spindles are mainly co-activated with the alpha motor neurons. So you have, have essential sensitivity of the spindle is regulated in parallel with alpha motor neurons so that they would still be sensitive as the muscle shortens. And I think, I'm not quite sure, but I, I think that gamma motor neurons are select, the, the separate control of, uh, of, of the muscle spindle is probably a mammalian thing. I'd, I mean, the thing is that it may not have been analyzed in reptiles, it may not have been analyzed in birds, <laughs> so it may very well be there. But, but I mean, the muscle spindles are present in, in amphibians and yeah. maybe in some fish. Yeah, Arthur always, you know, like, you know, I have a 
background in insect walking and, and he always yeah. said look at the compare the, the walking of a stick insect with that of a cat and then then you understand you know this important of, of but, but, but i mean it could be a locust instead <laughs> <laughs> no exactly and you know and and that that brings me to the next question you know in the locust what we found is that these stretch receptors or the cortical organs they don't have gamma control but what they have is neuromodulatory control so basically the octopamine that are released during locomotion yeah. can change the sensitivity of these organs. And do you think there's an equivalent of a neuromodulatory control of these afferences in mammals or have people looked at that? What I know is that there is a noradrenergic innervation also on the spindle. If, and if, but I mean, that has been speculated that could have relate to circulation or not, but I, mean, mm -hmm. I know that it's there. And, uh, uh, but, uh, but I think nobody has, uh, I mean, you, you have the uh, neuronodic innovation of muscles also changes the muscle properties actually. So, so something called after a guy in Tbilisi in the 20th, of the Birla something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. No, I think, uh, you know, it's also an important concept to think about neuromodulation, that it probably acts on the CPG, on the afferences at all the different exactly. levels to change the state. And, and hmm. in fact, again, coming back to the locust, you know, where we found is that if, if you touch the tegula, which is an, an mm -hmm. wing afferens in the quiescent animal, hmm. nothing much happens. But when the animal is uh, flying, you release the octopamine in these the CPG neurons, you know, like in this case, yeah. interneuron 566, et cetera, they become extremely sensitized by inducing intrinsic membrane properties. And, and now the sensory input plays a huge role and, and triggers a, a wing beat. So, so I think this interplay between, you know, state, CPG mm. and sensory yeah. control is, is really very fascinating and it acts mm. on, on different mm. levels within the CPG. Mm. So very, very, very cool. And, and evolutionary, you know, it's there in every yeah, animal and then it makes perfect sense to use the same circuitry in different circumstances and you just tweak if no if you knobs yeah exactly and and if you're not walking fast you know it's a it's a matter of life and death if if you fall down a rope uh, yes. you know it's not a good thing so no uh, and you know i think this is also big hope for for the uh, rehabilitation medicine you know and the idea of how you you cope with a spinal cord injury because all these afferences are still there. Mm -hmm. And and I think maybe we should talk a little bit about the rehabilitation medicine and the role of training mm. and reflexes there. Yeah, I mean, essentially, as I touched on before, uh, you if you have patients with spinal cord injury and, and you put them on a treadmill with support, etc., and you, you entrain the locomotor movements to have the appropriate sensory feedback that occurs during normal locomotion, the proportion of the patients can recover part of the locomotor training if they have a partial spinal cord injury, even if they are perceived as complete spinal cord injury neurologically, mm -hmm. it, they, they can, can, can still, still recover. So, so I think, Training is very 
important. And then what it has turned out lately is through the work of Harkemar and Edgerton and others, Kortin, that if you stimulate the dorsal column and activate the sensory, essentially the dorsal root input to the locomotor CPG, well, you, you can recover function quite effectively. And that's, of course, a very unspecific stimulus that sort of just Mm-hmm. 60 hertz or 20 hertz, whatever. But that is sufficient to enhance excitability in the CPG networks. So again, the little remaining control from the brain mm-hmm. and start to operate to, to play on that. And that's, that I think seems to be the mechanism. One has also used in high spinal cord injury, I think, cutaneous stimulation on the back that has had the same sort of effect. So, I mean, the trick is to elevate the excitability of the CPG networks and other interneurons so that they come into operation and then utilize the sensory machinery, which is still there. I, I agree. And I think it's it's the same topic that we already talked where you know you have on one hand the fusimotor set but then you have your neuromodulatory set mm-hmm. that needs to to put your cpg in that state and now all these reflexes and and sensory organs are still there mm-hmm. i think it's very critical also for the human also in particular for for hand grip you know how do you control your grip and and how do you find control this and i think electrical mm-hmm. stimulation is a big, big deal, but also maybe mechanical stimulation, etc., should all be present. If and I mean, what turns out, as I have recently learned, is that it's very important if the training is such that that I mean, you can use video screen and so forth, but to teach the patient to initiate the attempt movement again rather than just passively train different muscles etc so just having the intent facilitated by perhaps by sensory input etc so the will of the patient is not to be forgotten you know and 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 to be honest now now you bring me to something i think also very important that you know, when you talk to Holsteger, Gert Holsteger, you know, yeah. he always emphasizes that you have this kind of somatic motor control, but you have also the emotional motor control where, you know, how you you feel depends, you know, really determines a lot of your posture. You know, you can tell someone just on the posture whether that is a sad person or mm-hmm. a happy person. And, and maybe all this emotional control is part of this, you know, the person has to want to walk, and maybe you activate some of those. Yeah, no, no, it, it is true that, I mean, one has done studies on, on patients, how they walk, etc. I mean, it's in the context of depression and the context, I mean, you have very, very reproducible effects. And if you just ask a person to stiffen up and so forth, and with a straight yeah. back, <laughs> and look forward, (laughs) they sometimes feel better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then, you know, but there's also this other thing is of music, you know, like uh, I've seen Mm -hmm. that, you know, 
music for Parkinson patients and and whether this is because of just giving timing signals that that you have. I mean, the timing the timing signals is. I mean, you can use a metronome. It's not as nice mm -hmm. as music. Exactly. But, yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, to to assist walking, you can also have stripes. I mean, they often work much better in a staircase than over the floor because it's sort of visual input. Yeah, yeah. And um, it probably also means that you use more of the corticospinal control. Ah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, because it's still there in this yeah. case. Absolutely. And yeah. you know what blows me away? Once I saw this movie where a Parkinson patient that could not walk and then you put that person on a bicycle and yes. that person can do the bicycle riding just like fine, yeah. which yeah. which tells you a lot about these different motor sets that we have yeah. in different contexts. So, yeah. yeah. Stan, this is uh, very fascinating and I think we can talk forever here. Now, to, to finish it up, do you have some important take-home messages, you know, for our listeners, but also maybe for the future generation of scientists that gets as fascinated into CPGs as we are and spinal cord injury, etc. What do you have some take-home messages here? I don't think I have a take-home message that I can convey more than that. You have to identify what, what you really find interesting and, and work with that. <laughs> you know, and this is so true. It is so true because I, I never wanted to be a neuroscientist, but as soon as I sticked an electrode into an insect, and felt like I can understand the brain. I can con have a conversation mm -hmm. with the very mechanism that control our movement. I mean, it, mm -hmm. this fascination never never went away. And it's really a visceral fascination that I cannot explain. And, and I think it's a very important take-home message. The true love that stays with you forever, <laughs> for 100 <Yeah>. years. <laughs> okay, Stan, thank you so much again. It, it's a great honor talking to you and, and, and sharing, you know, some of these ideas and, and you clearly shaped the field of CPGs. And I hope you continue to publish in our amazing journal. And, uh, yes, of course. And, and we're <laughs> very honored been... to have you. Thank you so much, Stan. Yeah, and thank you very much for a very enjoyable discussion. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.